Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Lunch Therapy. My patient today is someone that you already know and love. He's one of the most well-known, well-respected people in the food world. His name is David Leibovitz. Maybe you've visited his blog, davidleibovitz.com, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, which I can't believe because my blog, Amateur Gourmet, started in 2004, so mine would be 15 years. So he's been doing this for a really long time. David is the author of many wonderful books, including The Perfect Scoop, My Paris Kitchen, The Sweet Life in Paris, and La Part, um, all of which, many of which have to do with his move to Paris and his life there. Um, But in today's session, I really wanted to get into everything that we don't know about his life, in particular, the stuff that happened before he moved to Paris. Where did he grow up? How did he learn how to cook? And all of that. So it's a very exciting episode. And before we get to it, I just want to remind you that if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. All you have to do is just go into iTunes, type in lunch therapy and click subscribe, and then you'll get little alerts when there's a new episode. And while you're there, hey, why not write a review? It's so easy and it's really fun to do. It will will make you feel like a food critic, except you're reviewing uh, a podcast. So give that a shot. And if you want to see what I'm having for lunch, give me a follow on Instagram at lunch therapy. All right. So without further ado, here is my interview with David Leibovitz. Yeah. Um, well, David, thank you so much for being here. Hey, I'm really happy to be here with you. I know. Well, I mean, we, we're old friends, right? Yeah, we are old friends. We're old friends from 2000. I was actually researching this. Oh, really? Um, from about 2004 or uh-huh. 5. I'm just going to turn my phone off. I forgot my own rule. Okay. Um, yeah, so wait, 2004? Yeah, stop watching YouTube videos while <laughs> we were interviewing. I know, I'm so rude. Wait, <laughs> so I, but I remember very distinctly, you wrote me an email. Do you remember that? Um, I think so. It was like right at the very beginning of all of this. Like uh-huh. food blogs were very new. Yeah. And um, you were. Well, you were new. I had started in 1999. I know. I, so I was you like, were like, I was like, who is this newcomer? <laughs> and I've got, I've got to get him under my thumb immediately. Uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was 2004 when I started. Yeah. It's so funny because I always think back to that time of like how naive I was. I just didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't understand anything about the food world. I didn't understand how anything worked. But that's why you were a success because you weren't manipulating it. Yeah. Um, and that's why you had also long longevity because it was genuine and people liked you and trusted you, not because you had created something, um, you know, you weren't trying to create something, you know, something particular. You didn't didn't have a goal. You were just like, I want to do this out of joy and happiness and fun. And it's such an interesting thing because it's like hard to recapture that, you know, once, once you start to get wise, like, oh, I can like sell cookbooks and oh, I, you know, yeah. I mean, you've always been fantastic at that too, though, because there is an authenticity to what you do. Mm-hmm. But I was curious about you, like, because now you got you and Deb Perelman mm-hmm. are still um, blogging and, you yeah. know, doing it. And I was curious, like, how, how has it changed for you? Has it changed um, for you? Some you know what the biggest change I think was social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when we started blogging, people would read your site. They'd go to your site, and yeah. they'd, or they'd subscribe during what's called. A, people don't even know what this is anymore. An RSS feed. Mm-hmm. We get a notification that the blog post, the blog had updated. And I remember how exciting it was. Like I'd be sitting there in the morning and like, oh my god, Adam Roberts updated <laughs> his blog. You know, right. stop everything. You know, yeah. Um, and then when social media happened and a lot more bloggers came and people started, um, doing it to make money, um, you know, to get sponsorships and I don't have anything against making money or sponsorships. Sure. Um, but it just, when that's sort of your sole objective, you know, you, now people are writing recipes for Alexa. Really? Yeah, for Alexa? Yeah. yeah. And I, oh it's, my like, God. <laughs> it's really weird to read the, the blog posts. Um, <laughs> and, you know, once again, it's a, it's a choice they make. People like Deb and I like to do it because it's part of, you know, we're, we're telling stories, we're mm-hmm. sharing recipes, and it's fun, which is what you did, and you're back to doing again. Although now I'm doing it in a totally different way. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I, when I said, like, I, I was naive about how it all worked, mm-hmm. I think I then, when I got wise to how it all worked, I tried to make beautiful pictures, and I tried to, like, craft yeah. SEO, like, popular posts, mm-hmm. and then it just was exhausting. And so now I, I got rid it of is. all of that, and I just, like, post whatever's on my phone. Yeah. And, and that can be exhausting. Like, the technology is another mm-hmm. thing that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. Is that's, that has changed. It used to be, you remember, we used to just take a picture with our camera, which was, you know, a crappy point-and-shoot, 
put it on, you know, put it up and then write a story. Mm-hmm. And then it became like recipe plugins and Google wanted this and right. you know, everything. And the picture has to be this size and, you know, it's, it's a lot. But I also think for you and Deb, like the reason I think that it still makes so much sense for both of you is that you're both, you've always been like curating and creating this extraordinary content that people crave. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like mine, mine was always very amusing and funny and whim- whimsical, mm-hmm. but like you are actually coming up with recipes and things that people really mm-hmm. want and need and are a part of their lives. So it makes so much sense that this pipeline that you've created is still a vibrant, exciting thing, you know. One thing I, I sort of feel a responsibility nowadays, the last few years have been very difficult for the world and for the United States. Sure. It's a lot of... Why? St- what happened? Just kidding. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's the next podcast. Yeah, Tune yeah. in for, you know, <laughs> David Leibovitz. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of stuff has happened. People became fractured. Sure. You know, everything's angry. People are on Twitter. There's all this stuff. And it's really difficult. I mean, I have a difficult time every day. I'm stressed out. You know, things are happening and you just, you know, you're like, wow. Um, so I kind of, I don't want to be the person that's baking brownies when, you know, the Nazis come and grab <laughs> people. But on the other hand, right. I think... People need a break. It's so much stuff mm-hmm. that I want to be that person who is giving people a, a, a time to breathe, time to clear their heads out, time to sort of get lost in something, even if it's for five or ten minutes. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it. Because yeah. it does kind of feel, I mean, at, at its worst, like food writing and being in the food world can sometimes feel frivolous. Like mm-hmm. we're just living in this, oh, we're like, like yeah. you just said, like baking brownies and this. But, but, but it sort of just makes you think of like, well, then what's the point of living life if you can't have uh, these high quality experiences or these beautiful moments? And, yeah. And also I have an international audience mm-hmm. and I like that because it ties Americans and other people to the world and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So people see someone who's American but who lives abroad who, you know, understands who's helping, you know, writing recipes and metrics as well as regular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sort of feel like I'm a bridge to several cultures and not in any, you know, not in the way that like a diplomat would be, but just because it feels good and that's what I like to do. And also, I mean, you're a celebrity. I mean, I have to say, when I... To your mother, yes. <laughs> no, I came to meet you at the Grove, at the Sur La Table at the Grove, yeah. and you had, like, groupies. I know. I had to get in a huge line just to be like, yeah. hey, David, how's it going? But I was going to ask you about that, like, because was that... Because I met you in 2004, mm-hmm. so how did that come about? Like, at what point did you start to feel the, the, a tip over, like, you getting recognized, people lining uh, up to meet you at book signing? I mean, was that always the case? Was it that way with the perfect scoop the first You know, summer? I think it was when my the book My Paris Kitchen came out, because okay. that was sort of a summation of what sort of I had, what had happened to me over the, the previous 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, my moving abroad to Paris, um, you know, writing a cookbook about Paris, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of my old blog posts were really goofy. I wrote things about living in France that people were like, well, that's not, you know, very nice. And it wasn't that it was nice. It wasn't not nice, but it was just I was pointing out aspects of the culture that people normally don't talk about. Mm-hmm. They usually talk about beautiful pastry shops and cheeses sure. and the lovely left bank. And I live in a sort of regular neighborhood where there's, you know— you know, real reality happens. So, you know, every day, it's like New York. New York is not Times Square or LA is not Universal City. It's, you know, there's, there's a grittiness to it. And I love that grittiness. That's why I like Paris. Uh Um, But that book sort of cemented everything for me. It was a really good chance for me to talk about um, everything I'd, done and learned mm-hmm. and wanted to convey to people. Well, also it's a fantasy of so many people to get to move to Paris and you yeah. lived that fantasy yeah. and then you brought in the reality too. So. Yeah. And people always say, oh, I, want to do, I want to move there. I'm like, well then go ahead. Right. I don't understand that you can't just move to another country. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, there's a lot of stuff involved um, and no one really wants to know about all that stuff. You know, it's like visas and paperwork. And but you're able to write about all that and make it funny and approachable. Yeah. yeah. I don't, you know, some of the stuff is, you know, you don't want to dig too deep. People think it's like, you know, getting a visa is like, you know, getting your cable, you know, changing your cable company. It's right. Like, no, it's a little more complicated than that. Is yeah. there a backlash? <laughs> when, when you write about those aspects of Paris, do you get a backlash from people who live in Paris who are like, you're, you're no. painting our, oh, our no, no, culture no. in an oh, unflattering way? No, they understand. And a lot of French people come up to me at things. They go, thank you for writing about like you're the only person that writes about Paris like it really is because mm-hmm. there's I mean it's always great to come to New York and talk to New Yorkers because they understand that love hate they like everyone in New York would not move anywhere else they're right. like they won't even go to Brooklyn sure you know, if you live in Manhattan 
Um, on the other hand, they just, you know, they will trash talk New York. It's changed, you know, since 9-11 and so forth. Yeah. But, you know, and Parisians are the same way. They're all like, oh, it's very dirty here. The people are so rude, <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, I think it's funny, the like in therapy right. terms, I learned, the, I learned the term projection screen, which is where like okay. you project onto something like what you're experiencing internally. And I've, I've discovered that with LA, like when I've been unhappy in LA, I've hated LA. I'm like, oh, LA is a disgusting city. It's terrible. Okay. It's hard. When I'm happy in LA, I'm like, oh, this is the, the coolest place to live. You yeah. know, I think you bring your own internal life into where you live. Also, you have moments, you know, moments of joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm in Paris or wow, I'm in LA and it's sunny and beautiful. Sure. And oh, look, you know, there's, you know, Mariah Carey having lunch next to me. You know, it's exciting. <laughs> you know, I'm in Paris. I'm having a really good croissant. And the guy's really cute who served me <laughs> and so forth. Um, but then you have other things. You're like, you know, bureaucracy or, yeah. you know, you're stuck in traffic in LA or something. I guess that's like life in general. You have good days, you have bad days, and cities do too. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, David, this is the moment where we oh. get to <laughs> therapize you based on what you had for lunch. But I, I don't know anything about what you had. All I okay. know is I told you to eat lunch. I don't see a medical certificate on the wall. <laughs> I'm getting a little nervous. It's in the mail. I mailed it to you, okay. so you'll get it when you get home later. Is there an exam or anything? Because I didn't. I did change my underwear. Oh, good. No, that's that's <laughs> okay. different kind of therapy. Okay, yeah, this is not doctor, that. Okay. No, very you're, different. You're living your mother's dream. You're becoming a doctor. Oh, believe me, this is <laughs> as close as I'll get. Yeah. Um, so, David, what did you have for lunch today? I had um, some leftover vegetables that I mixed together in a skillet mm-hmm. with some salted butter. And then I had um, some grilled chicken thighs over them. Okay. Is that exciting or not? No, I love it. Oh, okay. I, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I was like, oh, what's going to say next? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, it feels like a very David Leibovitz lunch because I feel like I follow your Instagram. I follow mm-hmm. all your stuff. And your lunches tend to be sort of like vegetable. Like, I feel like you yeah. open your refrigerator, you pull things out. Because it's, I think the question that you get asked the most, I'm almost certain of it, is how do you not weigh like 500 yeah. pounds, right? You get asked that right. all the time. I get asked that a lot. Especially because you're in the dessert world and you're, I mean, you do a lot of baking, right. pastries, and, and people associate but you that. you don't see overweight pastry chefs usually. Why is that? Um, I think because we're running around. I used to tell people like doing a, ba- a shift mm-hmm. is like taking three aerobics classes in a row. Right. Um, you know, you're just running, 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 running. Um, so when you're, um, like in a typical day, and we'll, we'll go into the details of your lunch in a little bit. Okay. But, uh, typical day. In a typical day, like you're testing recipes, right? Or you're, you're at mm-hmm. home cooking a lot. So when you have a lunch, is it usually just like fuel? Or is it, is it something that you're just sort of throwing into your body like while you're still cooking like brownies and cookies and things like that? Generally, it's odds and ends. You mm-hmm. know, when, I, when I'm going to have lunch, I don't want to spend like an hour and a half making lunch. You know, I'm not going to make a casserole for lunch or, mm-hmm. you know, fry a big steak or something. It's just not my <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, usually it's more casual so yeah. i'll take le- you know i'll usually have, i always have lettuce on hand i usually have some vegetables carrots mm-hmm. maybe tomatoes whatever um leftover chicken or cheese or goat cheese eggs hard hard cooked eggs mm-hmm. i'll just mix it all in a big bowl with vinaigrette and that to me is sort of a complete meal mm-hmm. you know it's healthy and healthful sure but you know there's meat there there's cheese there's protein there's you know olive oil all sorts of good things so today's lunch so what were the vegetables that went to your lunch um they were green beans because mm-hmm. if you're in france you have to have green beans every day uh-huh harry Covout. right um they were, it was broccolini. Okay. Um, and because we're here in New York, I had corn on the cob that I shucked off the cob. So d- were the um, green beans par-cooked? Or yes. And were, was the broccolini par-cooked too? Yes. Okay. And the, the corn wasn't. This but is a technical term, by the way, in case you don't know. It means, means like already boiled or already like right. softened. Par-boiled, par-cooked, yeah. 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 So, Mi-cui. so that was already in your refrigerator. You'd already, you'd yes. already like shocked and cooked the, the green beans and the broccoli. Exactly. Do you do that when you get home from the market? You just get them prepped and no, ready to go? No. I just put everything in the fridge okay. and um, but since I'm here for um, a few weeks I was here for a family wedding and oh, nice. you know, dealing with family stuff. Okay. Um, I have you know I was like, corn on the cob's in season, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to eat as much as possible. So, okay, so I just want to really get this. So you took these vegetables. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. David's already, yeah. like, sweating. I'm, I'm like, whoa. It's I like, mean, of all things like to be editor. <laughs> of all, like, kind of inquisitions <laughs> okay. to have, I feel like yeah. asking about your green beans is okay. not that personal. Okay. But I do want to know, because, I mean, people want to know this stuff. It's like, you're a food expert, and we right. want to know, like, what you, how you... Okay, I gotcha. 
Yeah. God, what an aggressive therapist. (laughs) (laughs) So you get your skillet on the stove. You added the salted butter first? Yeah, salted butter and some olive oil together. So you get it hot. Mm -hmm. And you added the green beans, the broccolini, and the corn all at once? Yes. And I actually added, I have, I discovered something um, about a year ago called Calabrian chili paste. Oh, cool. Which is like this big thing in America, but you don't get it in France because it's spicy. And I put a little bit of that in Uh and sauteed everything together with salt and pepper and that. Um, if I have herbs, I you know would have added them, but I don't. Um, what about like lemon juice or something at the end? No, because lemon juice and vegetables like doesn't do anything. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I don't disagree. Know, I always put I, lemon juice in my vegetables. Oh really? Oh okay. my god. Okay. Wow. I think this therapy session has already gone off the rails. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then the chicken was a chicken that you bought uh, raw pieces of chicken that yes, you grilled. Chicken and, thighs. Okay. And I marinated them with some of the Calabrian chilies, some Dijon mustard. Wow. That I travel with. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I really love this. You're uh, like Beyonce, except instead of hot sauce in your pocket, you have Dijon mustard. Right. But there's a few other differences between me and Beyonce. Oh really? <laughs> we'll get into that later. Okay. <laughs> So you grilled um, them and on the stovetop? Yeah. And then I just ate though. It was really good. Um, I'm sure it was. Yeah. It, you know, mustard, salt and pepper, olive oil. And people, there's, I often see recipes for complicated stuff like chicken. You know, mm-hmm. and they have you make this marinade and you whiz up onions with it <laughs> and, you know, curry paste and you pound the curry, you know, the, and then you make it and it's not great. Um, and I actually just like basic food. One thing, you know, I worked at Chez Panisse for a long time, and we were so ingredient-oriented mm-hmm. that you didn't have to add all this stuff to food. So I love the taste of good chicken, mm-hmm. free-range chicken. I love the taste of corn with butter and salt. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty hard to improve on corn with butter and salt. Um, well, I feel like this is like a nice segue because I feel like you have such distinct phases of your life that, you know, <laughs> having read all your books and like knowing a lot about you, I mean, we know a lot about the Paris portion and I know a little bit about the San Francisco right. portion because that's where you worked at Chez Panisse right. and did all that. But what I don't really know is you grew up in Connecticut? I did. Okay. Yeah. Do, do people cry on this show? Oh, yeah. Okay. Or that's the best part. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna, if I don't get you crying, we're going to have to do okay. it. We're going to do it again. But, but I'm curious because the, the, the food philosophy of Chez Panisse mm-hmm. seems to have carried over to your lunch today of like right. fresh vegetables and simply prepared. Mm-hmm. But in terms of your childhood and growing up and what you ate, I mean, what was the food like growing up in Connecticut? What kind of food did well, you have? Well, New England is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, New England cuisine is not fancy. There's not sauces. So, you know, we had things, we had like lobster. My mother was a good cook, which was good. Um, you know, she wasn't a adventurous cook but she would make like London broil for dinner mm-hmm. and, you know, we had one of those like um, skillets that you plug in and you put it on the tabletop and she would make like stir fried beef really? yeah in front of you? like yeah. Benny Hanna's? well sort of <laughs> but you know my mother worked so what did you know, she do? she was a teacher she was uh, an art instructor because she was an artist where in Connecticut did you grow up? Uh, do you want to know the address? <laughs> no okay. like what part of Connecticut? I'm mean, um, near central Connecticut outside of Hartford Hart- okay yeah so um she was an artist, so you know I grew up in an artistic household. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but she was a good cook, not fancy, but she made good stuff. Mm-hmm. And once again, it wasn't you know adorned with a lot of stuff. But did you grow up loving food right no. out of the gate? Um, not really. I think I was more into the process of cooking because mm-hmm. um, the first thing I remember I made. Well, the first thing I made was good season salad dressing. And a lot of people, you mention that nowadays, and they're like, what's that? <laughs> um, but you'd buy this little glass cruet bottle. I don't yeah. know if you know it. And it came with this powdered mix, and you'd put it in the cruet bottle. Uh-huh. And then there was a little line that said how much vinegar to add to that line, a little bit of water to this line, then oil to another line. Yeah. And you shake it up, and you made salad dressing. So I that think was my mom bought thing. that. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. It was like red wine vinaigrette. Like, I, I think that's the Well, name. you could add whatever vinegar. Yeah, uh, they had Italian, and then yes. it came out with other ones. So. I think I had that. So you grew up in, in Connecticut. Your mom yeah. would cook this food, but you didn't necessarily like see your future in food as no. a child. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Uh, I was actually, I went to school to learn filmmaking. Really? Yeah. How did I not know that? Because you never asked. <laughs> okay, where, did, wait, where did you go to school? I don't think I, I went have... to school at Ithaca College in upstate New York. Okay. I just found out the president of ABC went to school like two years. He went to Ithaca College as well. And it's like the t-shirts Bob always Iger. say like Ithaca is gorgeous. Yeah, right? because of the, it's a beautiful place to live. And there's gorges? Yeah, there's gorges. And it's spectacular. Like the, the scenery there is spectacular. So you went to Ithaca mm-hmm. and you wanted to be a filmmaker? Yes. And so did you study like 
Screenwriting, directing. It was more filmmaking. Like mm-hmm. we were given camera, like 16 millimeter cameras, and we'd have, you know, assignments like make a film about somebody being killed by a doorknob. That was one of our assignments. <laughs> and people did these crazy films that were, okay. you know, if you think about it nowadays, they were amazing. And some of the people I went to school with became well known. Oh my gosh. Um, but we also learned film um, theory and criticism mm-hmm. and not, not, to critique films, but um, history of film. Mm-hmm. We did a lot. We watched a lot of movies. Um, we took a course. This is amazing. If you think about it nowadays, a course, in, it was called Censorship and Obscenity Legislation. And we watched pornographic films that had been banned. <laughs> okay. And we learned why they were banned. Um, and I, now you know, think about it, you could never do that in a college. But it was actually, we needed to learn, you know, in the old days, you know, movies were at the theater you did nothing was on tv right um and what made a film obscene mm-hmm. and it was in you know it was a legal question too so did you watch like deep throat and things like that? oh no we, <laughs> we saw actually a movie called candy stripers yeah and um you know for college students to be turned off to sex after a movie <laughs> um really says how like how bad that how was. bad and obscene it actually was wait um, i have to ask you how did your person get killed by the doorknob um oh i what i did was i think the person opened the door mm-hmm. and i used um, I, we used real film in those days i think i took a pin and i scratched each frame to look like they were being electrocuted oh by the door yeah. <laughs> okay i'm glad i asked yeah, yeah. you know what i was this is like going off subject just for a second or it's actually on subject but i was in seventh okay. grade and my best friend at the time had a video camera mm-hmm. and we wanted to make a murder scene and this was the dumbest thing i maybe have ever done in my life but uh-huh. we put a piece of styrofoam under his shirt and then a ketchup packet on top of it and I took a real Ow. knife and I stabbed him. Okay, and luckily it didn't go through. But Ooh, like, yes. I'd be in prison right now. Yeah, that was really dumb. It was dumb. Yeah, okay. I was not the smartest kid. <laughs> so okay, so you were in Ithaca. You're studying film, and so mm-hmm. how does that David Leibovitz become the one that we know now? Like, what was the next move? Where did you go from there? Um, well, I was working at a restaurant when I was in college to make my way through school, mm-hmm. and it was a vegetarian restaurant. Okay, and we bought all our produce. You know, it was an agricultural region. Mm-hmm. You know, Cornell University. City. The owner's father worked for Cornell Dairy Department. Um, we'd buy stuff from local growers, mm-hmm. um, and not this is before anybody ever talked about farm to table. Just we would buy you know vegetables from the farmers and milk from the dairy store and cheese, and we didn't have any machines in the kitchen. We were really cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, then to tighten up the story a little. Um, you know, eventually I moved away. I stayed, I worked there for several years. And were you loving it when you were working there? Well, nobody loves working in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's once it's like living in New York or Paris or LA. Right. You know, it's what you do, and you don't love it until, in hi- you know, in hindsight, till 10 years later. But I know. guess maybe I'm asking, like, was there an element when you were working at that restaurant where you're like, ooh, like, this is maybe something I'm interested in. Maybe this is a field that I could be a part of. Or I didn't think about it that way at the time. Yeah. I don't think. I just thought, oh, this is what I'm doing. And sure. you get addicted to the stress and the adrenaline mm-hmm. when you work in restaurants, and it's hard to... Um, my niece just got married, and her husband was a chef, and he's now g- going g- going to become an electrician. He's leaving the business, and <laughs> hope he, he doesn't touch any doorknobs because yeah, they're very yeah, dangerous. Stick around, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll send him a thing about that. Yeah. clip of the film. Uh, but okay, but maybe another question about it is like, did you feel like you showed talent when you were working at this first restaurant job? Did um, you? Feel- yeah. I mean, you know, not to be, I don't want to, you know, it's a funny question to ask somebody. But no, uh, I mean, like, you did know, you like, yeah, have yeah. a spark of like, oh, yeah. this is actually better than what that guy over there is yeah. doing? Yeah. Well, the reason I got hired there was because the chef told me, he goes, you know how to move in the kitchen. Like, hmm. I did a trial shift and I knew how to move around. So, um, so you know, and we were also, you know, people loved the food. We were, you know, it was a well-known restaurant and people loved the food. So we... Would you say what it is or is it like a... Secret? Yeah, it was called Cabbage Town Cafe. Okay. Um, and there was, there's a cookbook out there and um, it's, you know, it's hippy-dippy re- cooking, but it's yeah. available, like, use the Cabbage Town Cookbook. And all the recipes are really good, like the soups. It sounds like Moosewood a little bit. Yeah, Moosewood was the other restaurant in town that got more publicity. Oh, of course. I have that yeah. book. Yeah, of course. But yeah. you don't have the Cabbage Town book. I guess I'll get that next. Well, you better get it today because everyone's going to be going on like Amazon. <laughs> I know. It's like sold out after this yeah. um, goes we viral. Did, we, you know, we made our own pasta and things like that. You know, we, we did things that other restaurants didn't do. So um, you graduated Ithaca mm-hmm. and then you moved to San Francisco immediately? or was No, there... no, 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 no. Okay. Um, I... 
um, I traveled through Europe for a year after college. Well, I lived in Ithaca for a few years after because mm-hmm. I liked such a great place. Till it's really uh, one of my friends moved back, who I went to college with. She goes, "I always dreamed about moving back, and then I realized I could." Um, <laughs> it's sort of almost paradise, except for the minus forty degree winter sure. temperatures. Yeah, um, but I traveled to Europe for a year. Okay, where did you go? Um, all over. I went from the south of Turkey to England. This is the old days. This is before you were born. <laughs> um, you know, we had backpacks, sure. and URL passes, and we hitchhiked and did all sorts of stuff. You had adventures. Oh yeah, and it was great. Now, was this something that your family supported? Like, were they okay with it? Were they like, go forth, David, and have adventure? You know, what did they? I mean, because I'm thinking like my Jewish mother wanted me to be a doctor, a right. lawyer. I mean, was that they, what they wanted for you, or were they were they more? Your mom was an artist. Was she right. more accepting of that? Well, my grandmother. Yeah. who was one of the people, she she survived the Depression, she was an immigrant, you know, she came to America, she was Scandinavian, mm-hmm. um, and she was one of these people like, work hard, always work hard, and she said to me, um, she goes, travel now, because when you get to be my age, you won't be able to travel. Mm-hmm. So for her to say that, that was like, wow, you know, because yeah. she would have been like, you know, you should you know, go work for a bank or something. So, <laughs> right. Um, so she gave you the kind of blessing to yeah. go have those. And when you were in Europe, did you have that sort of formative food experience that everybody talks about, like when they go to Europe for the first time and they eat Not the- really, because, you know, when you're on a budget, you know, when your budget is like $20 a day mm-hmm. or $30 a day. You know, you don't eat in restaurants. You might have like a ham sandwich at a bakery, but you're not really, you're thinking more about sustenance mm-hmm. and getting from point A to B, from A to B and finding a youth hostel to sleep. You know, it's, you're dealing with logistics. You're not sure. sitting, you know, you're not Julia Child arriving off the boat <laughs> having, you know, filet of sole with butter sauce. And, right. Um, so that didn't happen to you then? No. But did you... Did you feel a sense when you were there that maybe one day I'll live in Europe? I mean, did you have any no. sense at all? No. no. Um, the only thing, I didn't get to go to Spain on that trip. And mm-hmm. I said, I wanna, I'm want i going to come back and I'm going to go to Spain for like a month because I think it's probably going to be like a great country. Um, and so far, I haven't done that yet. I've been, ba- I've been to Spain, but... Um, um, but it was interesting because I was a film student. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated, you know, the jobs were either in L.A. or New York. Okay. And I didn't want to move to either place. Um, I thought, oh, I want to move to Minneapolis like Mary Tyler Moore. (laughs) (laughs) Throw your hat in the air. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, it's really cold there. Yeah, I Um, I don't see that. So I was, when I was traveling, I met people along the way, and I met a woman who lived in San Francisco. She goes, oh, when you come back, you should come and visit and stay with us. And And so I eventually did. um, And to condense the story a little bit, that was the time when California cuisine was like, um, starting out of the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, Jonathan Waxman, Alice Waters, Bradley Ogden, Jeremiah Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's black and white photos of these people in like Bon Appetit magazines, sure. little, you know, thumbnails. I mean, it's nowadays it's like, it's, you know, it was this thing that was happening. And but did that mean anything to you at that point though? Like, were you at that point invested in the food world? Were you enamored of it yet? Or, um, I wasn't, but I was reading the Chez Panisse cookbooks. I always read cookbooks and stuff, and I was like, oh, this is like speaking to me. This is saying exactly how I feel about food, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a part of this. So I moved to San Francisco, and I went to Chez Panisse for a job. Um, I was told to leave because I'd come in without any advance notice. I just walked in the door, sure. and the person was not happy that I was there. So that was a big faux pas. Do you remember who that was? I do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's somebody who's great. I, I know that person now. Okay. And I never even brought it up with um, him or her or them. But, right. um, I mean, that's a ballsy thing to do, right? To just show up and be like, give me a job? No? You know, I think if you're going to, you know, you drop off your resume mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, once again, I, you know. Did you call somebody? You know, pick up the phone and hi, Shay Panis, can I come in? You know, yeah. So it makes me think of the Sex in the City where um, Charlotte wants to convert to Judaism mm-hmm. and she knocks on the rabbi's door and she, they turn her away. But it's like a part of it's a rite of passage that okay. she has to go three times and then they know she's serious. Oh, okay. So maybe we're just having to convert to Shay Panisianism. <laughs> so okay, so you went. They turned you away. So then what did you do? Um, I went to go work at Zuni Cafe, which oh, was another cafe that was Zuni was half the size it is now. It used to be a coffee shop, mm-hmm. and they were serving food that was getting recognition, but they didn't have that big bar area. That, that used to be the cactus store. And, you know, there was people doing heroin on the back porch. You know, it was a very <laughs> funky area. Okay. But I worked there. Um, I didn't have a good experience. 
Was um, Judy Rogers there no, when you were there? this is before Judy, before okay. Gilbert bought it. Um, and Gilbert's a very good friend of mine. Um, he's the owner now. He worked at Chez Panisse. Judy was great as well. Mm-hmm. But this is before. So I have a quick question, though. So in terms of the history of California cuisine and like the, the, mm-hmm. the notion that like Chez Panisse had begun this idea of like farm-to-table cooking, and mm-hmm. stuff, I mean, when you were there, had that already been established? Like you got there and like the, yeah. the mythology of it all had already come out into the world. And so now all these yeah. other places were sort of doing that too. But the, peop- the places that were coming out were like 4th Street Grill in Berkeley. That was Mark Miller who mm-hmm. worked at Chez Panisse. It was Jonathan Waxman who had jams, I think, in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, Wolfgang Puck was kind of doing it. He he actually came into Chez Panisse to see how the cafe looked when he opened Spago because he wanted to make pizza. Oh, right, right, right. Um, and, you know, so these people were, you know, it was just spreading at that time. And how did you take to it when you got to San Francisco? Did you love it immediately? Did you have some adjustment well, period? I didn't have a great time uh, working at Zuni. And once again, it has nothing to do with the current Zuni um, restaurant, sure. the ownership or anything. Um, it was just the people that were there at the time it was a different, different place. Um, and I wasn't very happy. Well, I mean, knowing you as well as I do, or as long as I have, I mean, I don't yeah. know if I know you that well, but it feels like you're a sensitive person, right? Yeah. And I feel like being on the line of a restaurant notoriously is, oh, he's already crying. Oh my God, <laughs> we should have got the tissues ready. Um, but, you know, I feel like being on the line of a restaurant is notoriously brutal, right? Yeah. People are screaming at you and like, hey, where the, where the hell is my, you know, was that, with, I mean, did you take to that part of restaurant culture? Or? Um, well, at that job, it was very difficult for me to work the line because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was, you know, and not everybody was super nice to me. Should we say I was a newbie? It was kind of my hazing. Right. So what were your first tasks on the line? Like what were they having you do that you were freaking out about? Um, well, I would make salad, the Caesar salad that Mm -hmm. was famous. Sure. Um, so I made a lot of Caesar salads, which was fun, but I was doing grilling as well, which is not my skill set. And I was deep frying stuff. Like I remember I started a fire once. Um, It was just stressful and not fun. I was in over my head um, and I wasn't getting support. Um, So when a job, when I found out there was a change in owner of chefs at Chez Panisse, I like ran in there and I got a job. And I did a trial shift. Everyone loved me. And they're like, oh, you're great. But you have to have an interview with Alice. Okay. Alice Waters. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I, they were like, okay, just tell her you like Richard Olney <laughs> and, you know, simple French for the books. And I didn't know who Richard Olney was. I didn't, you know, read or something. So, I, you know, I made the mistake of not reading the book before my interview. And I'm a terrible liar. And she said, what's your favorite book? <laughs> and I was like, oh, The Joy of Cooking, you know, because it was the, the general cookbook of the time. If you want a recipe for brownies, you looked at The Joy of Cooking. Um, but I said, you know, I love salad. And she goes, okay, you're hired. Really? Yeah. That's all you had to say? That's like the password? Yeah. To shape well, you know, that's a telling mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you don't necessarily hire people for their skill set. You hire them because of their passion. Sure. And hopefully the skills follow. Um, and was that true? Did you love salad? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm not a not a good liar. So this so, all this all comes like full circle in a little bit because your lunch was vegetables today right. too. So I you still bo- do love salad. You love vegetables. Yeah. Um, um, okay, but quick sidebar. Like at this point, had you let go of wanting to be a filmmaker? Yeah. Um, I didn't have the. I don't think I had the talent to do it or the patience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've worked in production, and you know it's a lot of sitting around. Sure. It's, it's a lot of you know. Da, da, da. Well, you're a storyteller. I mean, I think what's interesting about you is that, you know, whatever instinct you had to be a director is probably also the same instinct you have to tell stories, which is Mm -hmm. what you do on your blog and your books. It's like, it all kind of came together. Well, I wanted to be an editor, and Mm -hmm. then I realized, like, you spend your life in a dark room and, you know, in front of a machine, (laughs) which is what a blogging actually is. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you're at Chez Panisse, and so when you were there, it was the culture of that restaurant just completely different than Zuni? Was it just, it was more laid back? Uh, Well, it was different. In those days, from five o'clock, clock when we opened the door there was a line down the street mm-hmm. to get in really and until eleven thirty at night when we had to close stop serving by the neighborhood rules we were packed mm-hmm. and i was the first pr- i was doing the guard manger position which is like salads and first courses so i would get slammed because they would seat everybody at once mm-hmm. and i was like please don't do that <laughs> yeah and did you have like more creative <clears throat> input at Chez Panisse like were you able to be yeah. like oh I'm going to use yeah. the nasturtium flowers well or- sort of but you know you ha- everything has to be really good there and Alice came through every day and tasted everything mm-hmm. she didn't like it she was like that's not good there's too much or, you know acid in the dressing yeah and she has perfect 
palette. She has a perfect palette. Really? Um, she really does have the perfect palette. And she's right 99.5% of the time. It's funny because I, I was lucky enough to meet her when I did my cookbook. Yeah, you cooked with her. I cooked with her. And it's so funny because I know that there's always controversy about, like, is she really, like, the, the genius behind Chez Panisse mm-hmm. or does she steal the credit from other people? But it was so apparent to me exactly what you're saying. It's like yeah. she has such incredible taste. And that's a skill. I mean, to, mm-hmm. have, to have great taste is, and to curate. Yeah, and, and she has really good people who work for her. Yes. You know, things happened in the past and that's all been, you know, that's all whatever um, but when I was there, yeah. you know, she was there. We had chefs. There was two chefs at the cafe. There was two chefs downstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, but everybody in that restaurant like listened to her. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to get 130 people to listen to you. Yes, you know, and she's a little woman. She's you know, yeah. she's you know, short and has a little voice. But she's very powerful in a lot of ways. She's almost supernatural. I feel like she's like a goddess or like Persephone yeah. or something. Well, like, we were never close. Like some people became very close to her. And they yeah. dined with her. Um, and something happened recently. Um, and I won't mention what it was because this is we're talking to people. But she sent me this the most lovely note. Um, it was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just so appreciated. Um, That's really nice. She has that. She's she, a good person. Yeah. In my opinion, in my experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I worked for her. Yeah, you know, I worked there for 13 years. Um, so I was very fortunate. Um, and I think that's why, like, my blog took off in a lot of ways. And um, my books, bec- well, even especially maybe the blog more than the books, at, well, um, was because I had I added a little bit of gravitas to the medium. Yeah, you know, there's people like you, Cotilde, <laughs> Pim, who are all great, but... Um, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, somebody who's like written cookbooks is now doing this. Yes, and there wasn't anybody else. Sure. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. So when you when you were there too, was it the the notorious like sex, drugs, and rock and roll era too at Chez Panisse? I mean, was there like a lot of partying going on where people there, staying till like five a.m. and drinking? there was stuff going on. You know, we were so busy. There wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. you weren't. There wasn't time to have sex. <laughs> okay, yeah. so you and Alice weren't rolling around no, the there floor. There wasn't even time to run around, run downstairs and grab more shallots. You know, okay. you were just you were just busy. But you know, you didn't you didn't have time to even like have a drink of water, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there were you know there was stuff that you know it was a different era and people are stressed out and mm-hmm. you know we all got along really well. Um, Chez Panisse had parties like a couple times a year mm-hmm. and it was fun because it was I when, you know once I looked around it's like we all really like each other we have great it's just we're in this sort of pressure cooker all most of the time yeah but you know they were my family and I'm still part of the Chez Panisse extended family sure um, so. so okay so then obviously then we need to get to the transition from Chez Panisse to Paris right yeah yeah and was that how, so it was 14 years at Chez Panisse. 13. 13 years, mm-hmm. and then you were ready for a change? I mean, yeah, well, some life events happened um, that I had left the restaurant business because I, I turned 40-ish. I was getting okay. 40-ish, uh-huh. and I was talking to someone who was a career counselor in San Francisco, and she said, well, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people your age mm-hmm. who don't know what to do with their lives because you can't work as a line cook forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, I, you know, I'd been a pastry cook, which is still a different kind of line, you know, working the line. But um, Do you mind if I ask what year this was? Like, like around what time this was? It was, was? around uh, 1998. Okay, so late um, 90s. Yeah. And I'd written my first book, which got good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, well, what do I do now? You know. And your first and, book was Room for Dessert? Yeah. Okay. And it, you know, was a, you know, it sold well. well I mean, people missed, still use it. We missed a step though, because okay, because the dessert of it all, like, how did okay. how did dessert become your thing? Okay, um, well, uh, I know this therapy session is getting intense. Yeah, I, I asked the tough questions. It's really not that hard a question. I mean, this is like your this thing. Just really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd been working as a line cook upstairs in the cafe at Chez Panisse, and I remember seeing the pastry people mm-hmm. um, working, and they always seemed to be sort of doing something that seemed more enjoyable mm-hmm. or more. I was like, I'm sort of fascinated by the fruit and making tarts and baking. Um, 
And they used to go to, you know, everyone at Chez Panisse likes to hang around the pastry department and talk to people there. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know why we're like, we, you know, we were like, or if you, somebody got, you know, they cut themselves, it was like the pastry people that, that would bandage them up. <laughs> someone got fired, I'd be outside talking to them. I'm, I'm sorry, you got, you know, somebody fired you, fired you. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why we were the sort of the, the mother hens of the restaurant. But um, an opening um, became available and I applied for it and I didn't get get it because somebody else got it mm-hmm. who you know was great as well or um but then she quit so i moved in and was there a sense with alice's good taste and her sense of like curating people like that you had the sensibility of a pastry chef? like like did they see you in that position yeah. but well, i think they knew i had the sensibility you know once again i was making salads upstairs right. and you know for Alice, you know, the salad was, the, you know, sort of the crown jewel at Chez Panisse and still is. You have a green salad there. Yeah. And it's extraordinary. And What's the secret? Uh, the secret is really good lettuce. They get fresh lettuce picked that day. Mm-hmm. Good at salad dressing ingredients. I always over-vinegar my salads. Craig always, like, chokes on my salads. Well, a lot of it's the quality of the vinegar yeah. and the oil. A lot of people don't, especially vinegar. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people buy the cheapest vinegar at the supermarket. I'm like, you know, for $3 more, you know, you can yeah. buy good vinegar. I buy good vinegar, but I think I overdo it. I, I like an acidic salad. Uh, I like the I contrast of the acidity. Yeah. But um, but I do feel like that sense of balance is so Well, do you put nuanced. shallots in it? No, I Okay, put shallots in the vinegar and let them marinate a little bit because they add a little natural sweetness that tempers uh, the vinegar. That's a good good piece of advice. Yeah. At Via Carota in New York, they actually add a little bit of water. I heard about because that. Because she says that it um, sort of softens the vinegar as well. I haven't done that. Yeah, I read. I think Good S- Seasons does that. Samin wrote an article about that. Samin Nasrat, yeah. where she said, like, they actually, you should be able to, like, drink the dressing if you make the Via Carota dressing. Yeah. Um, okay, so you went to the pastry department, and did you immediately take to it? Was it Lin- yeah. Lindsay Cher? Is yeah. that her name? And she was the pastry she- executive pastry chef. Right. And she's sort of legendary in, yeah. the, in the food world. So were you immediately, like, put to work, like, oh, making yeah, yeah. tarts and yep, making... Yep, um, yep, yep. I made tarts. I made almond tart. I learned yeah. it. I was, you know, learned to make the famous Chez Panisse almond which takes about a year to master. Uh-huh. Um, I cut up a lot of fruit, a lot of apples. I learned yeah. to make ice cream, um, everything. And we had amazing produce. You know, one thing about Chez Panisse that people also often don't talk about is money's no object. Like Alice was always like, somebody's got these beautiful raspberries. We have to buy them all. Okay. We used to get Fraise de Bois, and this is back in the 90s. Uh-huh. And, or, was that the right year? Okay, I'm getting my years mixed up. Yeah, maybe. And they were $7 a basket in, mm-hmm. in those days. I mean, for a restaurant, it, that's insane. Right. She would so, just spend it. Yeah, she's like, we have to serve those. They're too beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's like her her drive wasn't just to become rich or famous. Right. Or it was like she really wanted to give people pleasure. and Yeah, and she's had a lot of opportunities to become sure, you know, much more... And she never took that. She's not that interested in that. But I'll let I'll, you should book her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but with you, I mean, I'm curious because it, there's always that distinction between what they say, like the, the the kind of personality that becomes a pastry chef and the kind of personality that becomes a savory cook. Like I've heard that pastry chefs are much more into like exact measurements. Like they like you like to weigh things. You like to know it's mm-hmm. two cups of flour and stuff. Do you tend to be more one way or the other, or do you, do you swing both ways? You know, I don't. I'm I'm both ways. Um, okay. that's another re- revelation. <laughs> Yeah, we're learning a lot yeah. today. Shallots in the vinegar um, and David's. Uh, but it's funny both people ways. go to say to me, "I can't bake." I'm like, "Well, if a recipe says one cup of sugar, it's a cup of sugar. Right. You know, it's not like making a steak or you know making something you have to like estimate or making a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, how much peanut butter? Right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of responsibility as a piece, as a dessert cookbook author mm-hmm. because you are giving people exact measurements yeah. and they're going to explicitly like follow your instructions right and yeah. ingredients differ like you know eight ounces of butter and one you know one kind of butter is different mm-hmm. and I actually was looking at an old gourmet magazine mm-hmm. um, and they had a they tested like 14 tablespoons and each tablespoon held like a vastly different amount of salt really it was it was substantial. Sure. Um, I just switched from um, Morton salt to diamond crystal, yeah. which changes everything. Why well, tell people to stick with one ingredient, use it, know what it, you yeah. know, how it tastes. So you, you moved to the pastry department, you were working there, and did you love it? I mean, was this like, yeah. you, oh, this yeah. is what yeah. you wanted? Yeah. yeah. So you wrote your first cookbook. Yeah. And I was working with amazing people in the pastry department. Yeah. We had a real, we, they were amazing. 
we were a great team. And you know, it's interesting, like with your personality, like I feel like you like to make people happy, like you're funny, you're because it well, it feels but it feels yeah. like with, with pastry, that's what you're doing, right? I mean, like everybody yeah. loves yeah. dessert, right? Yeah. Everyone's got a birthday once a year, they gotta be nice to you the other <laughs> three hundred and sixty-four days. Right. But it's like with salad, it's like you give someone a salad, like some people will appreciate that. But if you yeah. give someone a brownie, it's yeah. like oh they'll they'll light up. So but they also yeah, then they also talk to you about their weight. You know, mm-hmm. when you're writing a cookbook, you're always trying to get rid of stuff because you have all these cakes. Everyone's like, Oh, I want to come and get it. Yeah. Like, okay, can you come at five o'clock? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to eat these sweets. <laughs> like, well, it's okay. funny because it's actually making me think a little bit about balance because mm-hmm. I think about you making those salads which are ba- were balanced, like well balanced with the oil, the vinegar, right. the shallots. And then even like your lunch today is like, it's, it's a balanced lifestyle that you yeah. lead. It's all about balance. It's like you're not eating brownies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like, no, you're. Well, exactly. And balance, that's the key to cooking. I mean, you add lemon juice to vegetables, which is really interesting. I'm going to try that. You've it's never like, squeezed a lemon? You've never even seen like, a cookbook with the cover as like, a lemon being squeezed on like, broccoli? I thought they only did that for covers. You know? <laughs> I, well, for broccoli, I could see because yeah. um, it's lemony, but I would zest because yeah. it's not so acid. I and mean, I love acid stuff. But it's like people say, oh, you know, put salt in your coffee. It'll change your life. Really? And, yeah. And never I'm going to do that tomorrow. And then in the morning, I'm like, I'm not putting salt in my coffee. <laughs> but, it seems, but it seems like you have to be a balanced person to be to work in sweets, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like you are surrounded by temptation all right. the time. Right. Well, you're balanced. Yeah. And you're ba- well, you're you're around all this stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. But you're also balancing sweet with tart. Because um, I don't like, you know, I was once doing a demo. I said, I don't really like sweet stuff. And people were laughing. I was like, what? <laughs> they're like, you're a baker. I'm like, yeah, but I like like bitter chocolate. I like coffee. I like raspberries. Sure. Um, but, you know, I like things like marshmallows, too. So I guess I do like sweets. So you arrive in Paris. Yeah. You get there. Yeah. And I feel like this is the point where it's like, okay, now go buy his books and read them. Because it's yeah. like, you basically document all that. But I am curious, like, when you got to this new country and you started there, was there an immediately a sense of... I'm finally where I want to be. Or oh, no, no, no. I arrived, and the apartment that I had rented, I'd seen on the internet. And I walked in, and it was a total, the ceiling had collapsed, it was collapsing. There was like dead plants everywhere. The mm. previous person hadn't moved out. All their stuff was, it was just like, oh. You know, I'm like American. I'm like yeah. expecting like, you know, a clean, like, you know, a clean well-lighted place. Sure, to it wasn't head, what you, you expected. Know, a zen retreat. Was Paris the number one? I mean, was it always clear that if when you left San Francisco that you were going to go to Paris? No. Or? Oh, no. no I, had, I was never like a Francophile. Uh-huh. But I think because Northern California is very much like France, mm-hmm. you know, the food's very similar, the goat cheese, the wine, the climate. Um, the interest in food as well, you know, and I sort of mythologized France a little bit too, like most Americans do. And there's a lot of truth in that myth. You know, you go there and there's bread everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, wine everywhere. There's coffee, there's cheese, there's all these great things. Mm-hmm. So um, there I was. Yeah. But what, what were the other places you were considering? I mean, did you think about going to, to Italy? Did you think about going to... Japan. I don't I mean, remember. I don't think so. <laughs> so okay. Um, so there was a call. Like it's it's, it's interesting because I feel like these different phases of your life. It was almost like you were like pulled to these these places that ended up shaping your whole destiny. Because because mm-hmm. going from um, you're backpacking through Europe to San Francisco right. at that time like set you on this course where mm-hmm. you were intersecting with Alice Waters and yep. all these titans. And then it's like and then you got felt the pull to Paris, which totally defined you. Yeah. Too. Well, I often tell people, especially people who are starting out, I was like, always work with really good people mm-hmm. and do a really good job and be thankful to them and to, you know, right. it's like blogging. You know, there's people who, when we were blogging much more, there was people who were super, there were people who were super lovely and helpful, like mm-hmm. Elise Bauer. Sure. We both know. Simply we, recipes. Yeah. And, she, you know, it was like, she was like the Mario Andretti of bloggers and we were all like, you know. The people who had, you know, what do you call those? Zip cars. Uh-huh. You know, trying to figure out. Wait, who's to, Mario Andretti? He was the race car driver. Oh, I don't oh. know. You, you're millennials. Okay. <laughs> millennial? I'm not a millennial. I'm 40. Wait, okay, so you get to Paris. Your apartment's not great. But I also am curious, like, in terms of shifting careers a little bit, so going from a, a kitchen where you're working surrounded by people yeah. to now becoming a published author and becoming basically a writer. I mean, whether yeah. you're blogging or writing books, you're a writer mm-hmm. now. Did that transition? Did you miss the culture of the kitchen? Did you miss being yeah, surrounded yeah. by people? At first, I didn't because um, I was, like, exhausted. Mm-hmm. I mean... 
and a lot of stuff had happened, you know, stuff happened, life things happened to me in, in the, between that. And I kind of needed a break. I needed to go somewhere else mm-hmm. and start again, you know, sort of take the etch a sketch of life, turn it upside down and gave it a, sh- I gave it a shake. Yeah. And I started all over again. You know, I sold mostly everything I owned, you know, put everything in two suitcases or th- I think in the old days we were allowed three suitcases. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, I wrote a book about the sweet life in Paris about that transition. Sure. That's a great book. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because that book, people still read it. Someone said, Oh, that's the Bible now. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, you know, if I look at it in retrospect, I was a different person back then, Yes, but it's funny um, like, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote about that. Oh, you know. Well, you're an interesting person too, in the sense that like you're very, um, public mm-hmm. but you're also very private I mean I think even as we're talking like I feel like there are things that you share and talk about yeah. like, there's things that you don't talk about you know well you know it's like talking about a lot of things there's things that people want to know about and there's things that don't they don't you know it's like writing a memoir mm-hmm. um, some people um, I was just reading about somebody who had written a memoir and she had written a lot about her sex life in mm-hmm. detail and that's kind of, you know, I don't know if people want to know that much stuff unless, you know. I think they do. I, I well, personally think they do. But, I mean, it's up to you. I mean, well, it, nobody bought that book that I've talking about. Oh, really? Well, people maybe it wasn't meant to down it. Well, it I think it's pretty... all, I think it has to do with context <clears throat> and execution. It's like, you know, if you're if you're sharing things about your life that are relevant to the story you're trying to tell, then sure. But, well, I, but, but this wasn't a criticism by any means. It's more just like, I think it's interesting how you and your job as a storyteller and a memoirist have to are sort of in charge of like, well, this is what I'm going to share and this is what I'm not yeah. going to share. You know? Well, you know, oversharing is a lot, you know, it's too much. And also mm-hmm. when you write a memoir, you can't write every, you know, I wrote a subsequent memoir called La Pout. Yeah, of course. Buying my apartment and, you know, renovating it. I love that book too, although I'm glad okay. you pronounced it for me because I, I would probably say it wrong. I was like, La Apart. <laughs> I know, I was like, why did I name a book something you can't pronounce in English? <laughs> but that book is very interesting because it's the next phase of my life in Paris and how I matured. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a bit, but it's also, I, th- I thought what was so interesting about that book is even more so than um, The Sweet Life, I felt like I got insight into your character you almost, yeah. like, almost like in a way that wasn't intentional. In the sense that, because you're telling the story of this apartment mm-hmm. and, and the saga that you go through right. to, to make it the department of your dreams, mm-hmm. but the frustrations you encounter and the, and the toll that it takes on yeah, you. Exactly. But I feel like it takes that toll on you partially because of who you are to begin with, too. And that sent me into real therapy. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. The interesting thing about that book was I really worked hard to make sure people realized it wasn't a book about, it wasn't an anti-France book. Right. What happened to me had nothing to do, it wasn't, you know, it was my fault. A lot of it would happen. You know, I didn't know how to handle the situation. Mm-hmm. I got in over my head. I shouldn't have done what I did. Um, you know, there was other factors, of course, but you know, it wasn't. A, it's not a book about because in France, everybody has that experience. My French friends who have read the book, they're like, "Oh yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. exactly what happened." Yeah, um, and it's sort of like to I me f- too. You know, I'm like, I feel like it all built to this like devastating moment. No, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember what it was. Sort of like oh. the discovery. I don't want to spoil the book, so people should go read it. Yeah. But, um, but you basically. I mean, I feel like it's almost a book that is universal in the sense of like having a dream and then encountering the realities of making that dream come true. There was a. I'm getting like actually hot right now because there was a moment in that story where once again I won't spoil anything but I was sat down near the end and my two people like sort of read me the riot act Mm -hmm. um, who were you know friends but also you know tough love yeah and that was when I was like I have to leave Mm -hmm. I'm leaving this is this is it for me leaving Paris yeah well, I feel like in all these different phases of your life, it's like you, you set, out, set about on these adventures. Oh my God, we almost got him to cry. We almost got it. Um, but you, set out, you set out on these adventures, which were sort of, re- I mean, you know, most people who live their lives play it safe. And yeah. The average yeah. person plays it safe. Yeah. And I feel like in every step of your journey, it's like you took a huge risk. I mean, they paid yeah. off almost every step of the way. Well, the psychological toll has been a little challenging. But, you know, once again, you know, as a writer or as a blogger even, you sort of have to take a risk. Like mm-hmm. you did the Janet Jackson breast cupcakes. <laughs> oh, I know. But, you know, that was like gutsy. 
and it got you a lot of press. Yeah. And that was a moment for you. It was a good moment, and yeah. it worked out well. I like that. Like, my risk was making breast cupcakes, and yours was, like, moving to Paris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, they're all about risks and things. You know, I always tell people, if you want to be comfortable, stay home. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't want to travel, that's fine. I mean, I yeah. love staying home. I'm very happy staying home. But I feel like your grandmother's advice that she gave you when you were young was, like, life advice, too. It's, like, live your life while you can, basically. Like, get out yeah. there and live a life, you yeah. know? Her name was Mame. No, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's your aunt, <laughs> Auntie Meme. Yeah. Um, okay, well, David, we're nearing the end. We're not quite oh. there yet. This okay. really flew by, though. That's a sign of a good podcast. Okay. But I always start with, what did you have for lunch? But I like to end with, what are you going to have for dinner tonight? Well, um, you know, this is um, this was actually something I was thinking about. Because I was like, well, Adam's going to want to know about my lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to sort of... Um, think about that but dinner is another story so I have salad because I usually have a salad for lunch Okay, but um, I bought some beautiful lettuce at the green market and I was thinking of having that with leftover chicken radishes olives um, I bought a bottle of Viognier white wine okay. which has been really good it's been um, it's gotten me through the last few days one bottle? <laughs> well because you know in France like you know for dinner we'll have a glass we'll have like a bottle of wine although I'm trying to drink less um, wine. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm just trying to drink. I just wrote a book on French drinks. Oh yeah! yeah. By drink. the way, we should pl- we should talk about okay. that. Drinking French. I'm excited. When does that come out? Uh, March, March third. Oh my gosh! Twenty. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'll get in line at Sir Latab when you're signing it. I'll. Oh yeah. I'll stand can. at the back of the line. You're in the book. No, you're not. Uh, <laughs> I was in one of your books. You were. And oh, you're- actually, you were in the Perfect Scoop. Yeah, I had a friend, actually, my friend Toby, independently of everything, okay. bought that book because he was getting an ice cream maker because I've really been okay. making your mint chip ice cream. I know. I'm like the so guy. into oh, that's it. That's right, the fellow who had who did a special. Oh, yeah, Ryan O'Connell. Yes. I was like, oh, he's he like, he didn't. Oh, he wrote about it on yeah. Grub Street. Yeah, yeah. He didn't mention my name. I know, but he but had, but I mentioned yeah, your name. Fine. But no, my friend Toby bought your book, um, and then he was like, you're in this book. He got so excited because yeah. it's in the sour cherry yogurt recipe. Yes. You're actually sort of the Alfred Hitchcock in my <laughs> life. You, know, like, you show up in my work in like this, you know, odd places. Yeah. Um, but you were, wait, we got so off subject. So your dinner tonight is also a salad. But wait, drinking. What, oh, drinking. Yeah. Yes, drinking. Your book is about drinking. Yes, um... And I drank a lot. It was interesting because I was mixing drinks. I was making cocktails, aperitifs, cafe drinks. Um, but I was drinking a lot of alcohol. Um, sure. And I have like this huge bar in Paris, you know. And I need to have a big party at some point now that the book is finished. <laughs> but um, it was really interesting, but I was drinking so much. And now I'm like, okay, I just need to... Well, how do you do that? Like how do you test recipes for a cocktail book? I mean, do you make the cocktails and then just like dump it down the sink after you make it? No, what I, well, you know, the thing is when you do a baking book, you can start testing recipes at 9 a.m., you know, (laughs) but at 9 a.m., you know, you can't really make a cocktail and taste it, but I would have to do that. And what I would do is take a sip of it and then put it in the freeze, the fridge. Mm -hmm. And then Roman would come home from work. I'm like, there's 12 cocktails. And he was like, whoa, (laughs) it's French. He's like not used to cocktails. How many Um, cocktails would you say when you're in in the trenches of testing this book? Like how many would you imbibe? A day? Like three, but I didn't drink the whole thing. Right. Um, and fortunately, I have an assistant who, um, <laughs> yeah. I, they would leave your apartment like tottering. Well, she's, <laughs> she's young. Okay. Um, so she could mix drinks and yeah. it didn't bother her. But um, one day she said, oh, I'm not drinking. I was like, uh-oh. So I was the first person she had told after her husband that she was pregnant. Uh, she's like no she's like no she's like you were like the first person oh my gosh that's yeah. hilarious what makes a <clears throat> cocktail a French cocktail like what what's well there's it? a lot well you know a lot of liquors are from France you know mm-hmm. there's cognac Calvados whiskey is now a big deal in France you know, chartreuse the French are the largest uh, consumers of whiskey in the world per capita really chartreuse sous um, lillet wine champagne mm-hmm. you know cit- le- lemonade is French you know this limonade Chocolate show, hot chocolate, marshmallow. You know, you're like you're like ordering the pre-ordering the book, <laughs> yeah. but all those things yeah. are they're not just um, they're they're not just drinks. They're part of the French culture. Like drinking is so important to the French, mm-hmm. and the book's not it's not a cocktail book. It's about the whole culture of drinking, mm-hmm. and cocktails are a part of that. And a lot of cocktails were invented in France because a lot of Americans went over there during Prohibition, mm-hmm. and a lot of the liquor didn't taste good in those days. So they would add stuff to it. You know, these beautiful aperitifs, they'd add Dubonnet to gin. It's like, oh, okay, you know, the Bloody Mary, 
um, this guy was given this French bartender or bartender in France was given a bottle of vodka and he had never had it. And he's like, this doesn't taste like anything. So he added tomato juice and um, they called it the bucket of blood. Oh, that's. And then when it came to America, they're like, we got to, we got to rebrand this thing. And that's became a Bloody Mary. Yeah. How did, what's bucket of blood in French or what's that cocktail called in France? I think they called it bucket of blood. Oh, like this English? I think it was at an Anglo bar. Well, this is all making me think also what we were talking about earlier of balance. Like, yeah. A well balanced, yeah, yeah, like a well balanced dressing, a well balanced cocktail. Mm. So, do you have a favorite cocktail from the book? I love Boulevardiers. Oh, Um, oh my God! I had I had Boulevardiers, and that's the drunkest I've ever been in my life. Okay, that's one. Now you know why. (laughs) But it's it's like a Negroni, but um, it's got bourbon or whiskey in it, rye. um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a it's like a three. Three ingredient. It's, it's to me, it's wonderful, and I also love the last word, which is a cocktail with chartreuse, mm-hmm. um, because I fell in love with chartreuse all over again. Writing the book, um, the history of the the drink is you know it's it's got a thousand year history. Yeah, I went there and it was like wow, I'm in the mountains and the monks are like talking to us. Yeah, and That's that was so great. Cool. I went last night to. Um, I flew in yesterday from L.A. and I. You know, had all the journeys like to the airport on the plane and flew here. And, there, and I went to, I met a friend at Prune last night here in New York and I had a Negroni at the bar while I was waiting for my friend uh-huh. and it tasted so good. Yeah. And that's another context thing where it's like, you know, Negroni is Negroni, but when you like, come after a huge day of travel and you sip something that's yeah. so satisfying. Well, it's refreshing. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about a Negroni is it's served over ice, but it's still strong. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it doesn't get like diluted and weird. Um, you still drink it and it's like yeah this is good and they usually use like a big ice cube in it and, oh yeah so Boulevardier that's the cocktail yeah. to get maybe I'll order one tonight when I go out for yeah, a drink where are you going tonight um, we're going to see a play called Slave Play so okay. I'm very excited about that and we're going to get drinks first somewhere so and how'd you like Moulin Rouge we haven't seen it yet going oh, on Saturday okay. did um, you like it um, yeah it was good um, yeah, it seems like a lot of fun. Um, well, David, did we cover everything? Do you feel like I psychoanalyzed <laughs> your life through through the prism of your lunch? Well, I was waiting for you to come to a conclusion so I could live the rest of my life um, in a Zen state of bliss. Uh, well, you're that's very- what therapy is supposed to do, right? But I think that we or do you want I, me to come back next week. <laughs> I actually think that, but I do think like somehow, like you know, like I try to do these podcasts and these lunch therapy sessions almost like improv in the sense that like I don't come in with an agenda. I sort of mm-hmm. see where it goes. But with the idea of balance with you, yeah. I feel like that's really it's not something I thought about before coming here. But mm-hmm. like hearing you talk about your life and thinking about your lunch and thinking about the cocktail book and the salad dressing, I think uh-huh. it, I think that you're a well balanced person. That'll be five hundred dollars, please. Okay. <laughs> and I cry. Yeah. David, thank it's you so much. Word. Thank you. I'm really happy to be on your sh- your podcast. Thanks. All right. It's great to see you, and I'm glad we've gotten to be in touch. We've kept in touch since 2004. I know, and this is it. So you know, oh. it's good, good knowing <laughs> okay. you. Yeah. Now that you've done the podcast, this I don't really need to. Yeah. This yeah. is a goodbye. Thanks, David. Okay. All right.